This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado hasn't gotten much for the millions it has invested in literacy. Despite spending $231 million in the last five years, more than half of kids kindergarten through third grade are behind in reading. All that money came from something called the READ Act. So what went wrong? Education reporter Chris Osher of the Colorado Sun investigated, and he joins me. Hi, Chris. Good morning. In 2014, just 38% of Colorado third graders were reading at grade level. Along comes this money from the READ Act. And how many are meeting expectations now? 40%. 40%. So just 2% more. Did that surprise you? Well, yeah. Some of the, when I first heard it, I almost thought that that was reversed, you know. But no, it's a kind of shocking statistic. Um, And what's even more puzzling is, uh, you know, the children classified with significant reading deficiencies, which is way, way, way below grade level, so far below that you may never end up reading proficiently ever. Um, Those have actually increased in the last five years. That is to say those students have slipped, the ones with the most severe needs? Correct. Okay. Uh, And I was going to ask you what the stakes are here, and it sounds like for those kids at least, it's the question of whether they will be able to read at all in their lives? Yes, there's – you really want to intervene very early. Um, There's a saying that, you know, kindergarten through third grade – you're you're learning to read. But after that, you're reading to learn. And so if you don't get that down by fourth grade, um, you're really in danger of never catching up. And you're much more likely to actually drop out of school. And it's fascinating. That affects your ability to learn for the rest of your life. Why haven't there been better results with this Read Act money? Well, there, there's a lot of debate about that. One thing that it does look like there, there's two components of this program. The, about 90% of the money is just a per-pupil expenditure that you get from the state based on children classified with a significant reading deficiency. Okay, so based on a school's need. Yes, and there's there's not a lot of strings attached to that. The state doesn't track that the school districts receiving that money really spend it. Uh, the way that they're supposed to. Um, there's a lot of local control over the money. In other words, curriculum isn't reviewed by the state on that. And there's a lot of concern that perhaps some of those school districts are using the money on curriculum that's not really the best curriculum that you could get, according to research. Okay, so the question there is whether the money is being well spent on reading. Are there any questions about whether the money might be going to places other than reading? Is it that loose? There is some concern about that. For instance, a a legislator who was a sponsor, uh, she's no longer a legislator, but Millie Hamner, she was one of the legislators who shepherded this through the legislature, uh, she was touring a school and, you know, the teacher was pushing back and saying, oh, my gosh, the READ Act has, you know, so much paperwork that I have to do, so much data tracking. And Hamner looked at her and said, well, you you get $1,000 per pupil with a, you know, reading issue. Is that not helping? And the school teacher just looked at her blankly and was like, what are you talking about? I I don't know. I don't get those resources. You said that the money had a sort of second component. Yes, it does. So, you know, and the state has said in that pure pupil one, they've even found instances 
where, you know, some of it's going to generalize summer school programming, not intensive reading focused. But there's another component um, that carves out about $6 million for competitive grants that schools apply for. And that's much more competitive. They have to come up with a plan as to how they're going to spend the money. They have to, you know, take curriculum that the state has judged as very effective. They get state consultants that visit 10 times a year and really review how teachers are putting this into practice. And so that has actually shown better results. Uh, You know, students in that program have shown gains. Interesting. So the part of the money in this READ Act that in a way necessitates more accountability seems to be delivering uh, versus the other portion of this. Correct. Okay. And what have the advances been? What can you say about ways the READ Act has been successful? Well, in that in that scholar uh, the competitive grant program, uh, you have seen gains made. You, you know, a, a school can hire a literacy coach. That and and this is another component that has raised some concerns among state officials. That when they've really looked at the teachers, it, it this teaching reading to somebody who's far behind, it's described to me as like really almost rocket science. It's it's very specialized. It's very difficult. And they've picked up that a lot of teachers actually don't have this skill set, um, that, that it's really difficult. In fact, they did a pilot project in which they were putting in place something called structured literacy, which is a very kind of very regimented way of teaching reading. And they found that when they surveyed teachers participating in that pilot project, I think it was about 60, half of them didn't know how to teach English structure, Ah. which was very concerning. Okay. And that speaks to perhaps another deficit. It's not just a question of how the money is being spent, but whether there are the right people in place to do this kind of intensive intervention. What is being done to ensure that the READ Act money, these millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, will be better spent into the future. That's kind of a, a big debate right now. Um, state officials say they are looking at the competitive grant program and the fact that it showed some reading gains and that they are, you know, contemplating perhaps putting more accountability into it and that they're going to perhaps go to the Colorado Board of Education and ask them to weigh in on that. Uh, there are other legislators. There's one Republican legislator who says, you know, I want to just bypass the system and end up carving out money that could just go as grants to poor families and they could just hire their own tutors. You mentioned poor families uh, because in general we see an achievement gap uh, in literacy and other subjects, white students performing better than students of color, wealthy students performing better than kids from low-income families. Is is that reflected as well in the results of this Read Act money? Yes, and the data. So 40% are reading proficiently for the general population. Yeah. Um, when you look at the rates for those who are coming from families of poverty that are on free and reduced lunch programs, uh, it's actually much worse. It's 27%. Oh, my goodness. Thanks for being with us, Chris. We appreciate your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me come in. He's Chris Osher, education reporter for the Colorado Sun, and he's written about how the READ Act to improve literacy in Colorado has fallen short. Our next guest finds herself walking a tightrope, metaphorically, a balancing act between preserving the Arctic and Antarctic from the effects of climate change while enabling people to visit those places. 
Conservationist Denise Landau lives in Carbondale and has pioneered ways of keeping polar tourism in check. She actually has a glacier named after her. And Denise, welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks to, thanks for having me here. It's fantastic. You're in Denver, actually, to speak with AAA about the increasing demand for polar tourism. You yourself have been to either pole just about every year. Uh, will you share one of your favorite moments being in those environments? Yeah, it's a, it's an, an it, well, it's an absolutely fantastic place to go to because you you don't feel the same. You're immersed in an environment that's completely different than anything that we have here in Colorado or even most of the rest of the world. Um, the ships that we travel on uh, cruise slowly through fjords with big mountains and glaciers and icebergs that have different colors and textures. And the scenery around just makes you feel different compared to sort of your, your daily life. And the wildlife around is absolutely fantastic. So to be in a place where you're surrounded by hundreds of thousands of penguins and whales and seals without actually impacting them is unbelievable. Hundreds of thousands of penguins, did places, you say? yeah. How does that sound, I wonder? <laughs> Noisy. Noisy, yeah. And smelly. <laughs> How many people actually visit the Arctic and Antarctica each year, and how has that changed? Give us a sense for the demand. Well, it's changed over time. So when I first went down, which was in 1991. So when you're saying going down, I gather you're talking about yeah, Antarctica. Antarctica, going south. So in 1991, we had about um, six, 7,000 people going to Antarctica. And last year, we had over 50,000 on a combination of um, small yachts to medium-sized expedition cruise ships to larger cruise-only ships and airplane travel. So that's a massive increase in Over interest 30 years, and yeah. access. And is that true as well for the North Pole? Well, the Arctic as a whole um, has even much greater numbers because there's eight countries that surround um, the Arctic Ocean. and A bit more accessible. Way more because you can actually fly to... Uh, you know, over 80 degrees north and and then hop on a ship or um, do a snowmobile tour or a dog sled tour. Um, so it's a completely different type of tourism combination, but certainly expedition ship in uh, the expedition ship industry is growing up there too. What do you think explains the increase in demand? People want to go to amazing places and they're But accessible. they've always wanted to do that. Yeah, it's just become more, it's easier to travel. There's more air flights. There's more ships that are going. You can go comfortably. You don't have to pack and unpack your bags. You, you're you not camping in the cold. Ships really are the vessels to bring yeah. you to Antarctica. I understand they're more under construction to bring more people down there. And critical to this conversation will be the question of of balancing the exposure that brings, perhaps the awareness that brings, but also the impacts that that can bring. But why don't we talk just briefly about the difference between the Arctic and the Ant Antarctic? I mean, they both have snow and ice, but they're two very different environments. Will you draw some distinctions for yeah. us? Yeah. So Antarctica is basically a continent of rock land completely covered by several miles of ice. And ice comes all the way down to the coast. So when, you, when you're when you on a ship and you're, you're cruising through fjords or around any of the bays, you're just looking at whole mountains full of ice on the continent. And the ice will fall off the glacier uh, faces and, and the water, and you get these big, huge icebergs. But the ice is actually coming from the continent. 
And then there's also sea ice down there, ice that freezes over the winter and then starts to melt in the summer. Whereas the Arctic is an ocean. So it's ice, it's sea ice over top of, of an ocean. And then there's there's countries that surround the Arctic Basin or the Arctic Ocean. Why do you think people want to go to these places? What explains the desire? Wilderness. You know, people want to go to wilderness just like they want to go to all our national parks and just have, um, you know, fantastically great, quiet, wilderness-type experience. Um, but in the Arctic, for example, why wouldn't you want to go see a polar bear? You know, being being up in the Arctic and watching polar bears just walk on sea ice is, is one of the most amazing experiences um, from an Arctic point of view, as well as having walrus come up right near your zodiacs or seals. And then conversely, in the Antarctic, just being around mountains and mountains of ice. Um, and then you, <laughs> we, we have about 200 some odd landing sites that we use on a regular basis down there where you go ashore and there's hundreds of hundreds and thousands of penguins on shore greeting you greeting you, as you and just sort of ignoring you because they're they're they've not got nothing they have nothing in their evolutionary system that makes um, them afraid of you but Denise Lando let's talk about this tightrope this balancing act i mentioned uh, so certainly traveling to the poles introduces people carbon footprints um Knowing people are going to go anyway, though, you've worked to minimize that impact through something called the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators. Can you give us an example of a change that they've made to protect the place, to reduce, in a way, the footprint? Yeah, so just a little bit of history there. So back in, in, in the late 1980s, there was an increased number of ships, seven of them, which is Ironic because now there's about sixty. Okay, seven seems so. <laughs> yeah, now. I know, so so small. Um, and it was actually the National Science Foundation in Washington. Um, to uh, two of our friends, uh, longtime friends now, who've contributed greatly to the work that we've done as well, who basically said to the tourism industry, "If you don't find a way to regulate yourself, we're going to regulate this for you." So the tour operators at the time banded together and formed an industry membership organization called IATO, which is the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators. And while I didn't go to the first meeting, I was at the second and then um, was a company representative for seven years and then took over the organization as executive director. And in what kind of steps did they take themselves so what to lessen we, the impact? What we had to do is we had to figure out how to... Um, make sure that we did not land too many people at any one site in any one time, especially during the breeding season for penguins in particular, as well as other seabirds and seals, whales, etc. So that requires so, an incredible amount of coordination amongst all of these tour operators and these ships to make sure that one ship isn't landing in one place too much. Yeah, so we have a rule that says one ship at one landing site at one time, and we have a ship scheduling program that actually um, you sign up for companies actually go online. We call it the Derby Day, and and they they sign up for what their preferred landing schedule is for an entire season. And then we also don't allow more than a hundred passengers ashore at any one time. So that means you're not landing three, four hundred, five hundred, a thousand people on shore at any one time on a small beach during the breeding season, for example. And then, what do you tell the tourists? particularly in Antarctica, about how they should behave? Uh, well, we, we're, we've got st- we have a, a staff-to-passenger ratio, so we have one staff member for, ed- for every 20 passengers ashore. 
that are actually watching passenger movements. Uh, we often set up a perimeter. We have guided walks. Uh, but we we will actually watch what our traveling public are doing and we, how close they get to wildlife yeah, yeah but we educate them you know when you're, you're when you're watching penguins and they're going through their whole breeding cycle in early november um or they're sitting on eggs or, or they're feeding chicks we actually educate so we so we have people um just sit down quietly and watch what's going on we keep them 15 feet uh, away from any of the uh, penguin populations seals or further depending on what's actually going on in so the colony do these uh, polar tourism companies do they generally behave well do oh. they generally follow the guidelines yeah they're amazing it's having now been involved since 1991 i'm really proud of the fact that all these all the tour operators are doing the very best they can to protect wildlife and environment and wilderness in both polar regions, not just one, but both. How do you address the natural question that this kind of tourism does increase one's carbon footprint, the very thing that threatens places like the North and South Poles, uh, that travel is, is, you know, sort of carbon intensive? How do you balance that against the question of exposing people to this part of the world and perhaps making them appreciate it more? It's hard. It's torture. It's sort of the same thing of, you know, I live a mile from the grocery store. I could easily ride my bike and go get groceries, you know, but do we? (laughs) So um, it's a it's something that's a challenge that we all do on a daily basis. You know, how much do we drive? How much do we fly? You know, what are we buying? What are we buying and where does it actually come from? So, you know, you, it's something that we sort of subconsciously do on a daily basis. But for me, going south, it's, it's hard to balance that. I get on a plane, I think, oh, you know, I am increasing the carbon footprint. But I balance that by enorm- enormous hours of volunteer work in conservation areas in both polar regions. It's fascinating you so. describe it as torture. My goodness. You'll well, no, you, you feel that, though. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't want to be impacting, you know, what we all care most about. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with conservationist and polar tourism pioneer Denise Landau of Carbondale. And let's talk about your work on conservation, um, particularly, I think, uh, related to, uh, is it Georgia, South Georgia Islands? Yeah, so this is an island that is south, down near Antarctica, and there was a problem there. Tell us about the problem and how you helped address it. Yeah, so South Georgia is probably one of my very favorite places on Earth, besides Colorado. <laughs> and it's a little island about the size of Long Island in New York, in between South America and Africa. It's um, out in the middle of nowhere. It's a sub-Antarctic island. And, th- and what that means is that the polar front or the cold polar waters um, are actually above where South Georgia lies. So it's got the ecosystem of Antarctica, but it's it's way north. Fascinating. And what South Georgia offers, it's sort of like the Galapagos on steroids. It's it's you you're on beaches full of fur seals and elephant seals and they're breeding and they're having their pups and then literally in some of these landing sites that we use there's 400,000 nesting pairs of of king penguins as well as non-breeders and chicks and so you could you could end up being on shore with almost a million birds so what happened in the late 1700s is american sealers came down wanting to hunt fur seals and elephant seals and they brought rats with them so for a few hundred years um the, the norwegian brown rat 
population increased. And then in the 1900s, the whalers actually came down hunting whales, and they brought rats with them as well. More rats aboard these ships. Okay. Yeah. So what we did is um, in, in 2009, a very small group of us sat in the Falkland Islands in a meeting and said, what do you think? Should we do this? Should we eliminate rats in South Georgia? And and the rats were threatening perhaps the yeah, native species? Seabird, yeah, so prions and petrels and albatrosses, um, all the nesting seabirds that come to South Georgia from the whole of the South Atlantic, um, the chicks and eggs were being eaten by rats. So we figured out that if we could eliminate the rats, we could save the seabird population. So we we started fundraising in 2010 and 2011 with two helicopters that we were able to purchase. We then began a an eight-year-long project to eliminate rats, and, and we think we did it. How do you eliminate rats? So we bought these three helicopters, hired the best pilots, mostly from New Zealand and the world, and um, we learned techniques from um, New Zealand and Australia in particular um, who were um, – folks who who've been working on eliminating rats in those offshore islands and bought um, big, huge bait buckets, big aluminum bait buckets and um, bait, which we bought from Wisconsin, uh, from Bell Labs. And it's like it's a it's like warfarin. So we dropped bait out of helicopters and spread it all over the rat areas in South Georgia. And the, the, it was poisoned, in other words. Yeah. Interesting. It's like, the, it's like those little green mouse pellets that you put in, you know, the corner of your house. And I suppose your goal with polar tourism is to encourage others who visit those places to then be the next generation of conservationists. Yeah. yeah. And maybe even have a, a, gla- a glacier named after them, the Landau yeah. Glacier, which is in the Antarctic. Thanks for sharing your experience with us, Denise. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for being here. It's a wonderful part of the world that I love to share. Denise Landau of Carbondale is a conservationist and polar tourism expert. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If someone visits your home, you hope they don't trash the place. But Colorado gets 82 million visitors a year and they don't always leave it as they found it. It's why the state's Office of Tourism is taking new steps to educate people before they even get here. There's even a jingle. Careful Colorado, it's the only one we got. Respect the place, leave no trace, you'll really help a lot. So how do you stop sloppy behavior in the outdoors? Kathy Ritter is the state's tourism director. Welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. You've developed principles that visitors should live by. Give me examples of the worst behavior you're trying to prevent. You know, I think a lot of the worst behavior is unintentional. People may not bring a water bottle. In my opinion, that's probably one of the biggest sins. Because Uh, what, they leave plastic bottles in their wake? If they're traveling across Colorado for several days and they're buying disposable water bottles everywhere they go, they're leaving a trail of water bottles through our state. And that's creating a waste issue. Even if they're recycling 
recycling, it's better to use a reusable water bottle. We've actually equipped all 10 of our Colorado Welcome Centers now with refilling stations. And one of the messages we're trying to share with travelers when they enter our states is buy a water bottle, fill it up. You can fill it up for free. Okay, what else? You know, I think also people sometimes think they're seeing wildlife they've never seen in their lives sometimes for the first time here in Colorado. And they want to engage with that wildlife. Well, as we who live here know, for one thing, it's not safe. But for another thing, you can really disrupt natural behaviors. There's a, uh, I won't name the spot, but there is a place where people have habitually fed chipmunks. And that's actually kind of inspired one of the scenes in our video. But when you feed those chipmunks, it changes their natural behavior and you get swarmed by chipmunks. Wait, this is in St. Elmo. Right? It's not. It's it's probably in more than one place in okay. Colorado. <laughs> All right. I'm talking about a place in southern Colorado. It's interesting that you started by saying you don't think the behavior is intentional. Uh, because in the past, we've seen mm-hmm. some natural places vandalized. Mm-hmm. I mean, sandstone cliffs at a state park. The Colorado National Monument was defaced with a prom proposal. This is actually reflected in the Care for Colorado principles. Three. Leave it as you found it. The flowers and the trees. We don't need to know who you dated in 1983. The sort of heart, you know, with Angelica loves Bill or something. I want to question this idea that, that some of the behavior isn't intentional. Well, the example you just lifted up, when people are hiking along popular trails, sometimes they'll see an aspen tree that already has a lot of carving on it. And they think, oh, that's cool. I'll add my initials, too. But what they don't realize is those initials never go away. And so that's really one of the reasons we're engaging in this education. And we've chosen Leave No Trace. Center for Outdoor Ethics is our partner. You've teamed up with the folks at this nonprofit to reach hotels, dude ranches, outfitters, and I understand get the word out even before people arrive. How do you reach them beyond like a brochure they may or may not read, you know? That is the challenge. Uh, One of the things that research tells us is the most effective way to influence behavior is to reach people in the planning stage of their trip. Okay. And so tell them when they're packing, bring your water bottle. So maybe you have the dude ranches saying that, as a matter of course, when people book with them. And that's exactly what the Dude Ranch Association is planning to do. They've produced a brochure that will go in the welcome packets for every single guest before they arrive in Colorado. The other thing we're working on is encouraging organizations to include a link in the reservation confirmation to the Care for Colorado Principles. The reason we went down this road, Ryan, is because our research was showing us that Coloradans were starting to express some concern. Uh, Impacts on water, impacts on wildlife, impacts on land. Sometimes it was expressed around too many people being in the same place at the same time. But what we've found is that this issue is growing importance for visitors as well. So we've been tracking this over the past two years. So it's not just those who live here who are concerned about this, but tourists themselves are saying... I want to be better when I'm traveling. Exactly. Do you think another place in the world, be it a a park or an entire country, has mastered the leave-no-trace ethic? You know, it's interesting. The United States as a country is far behind the curve. This kind of care and concern is being expressed 
in a lot of areas of the globe. There's the Icelandic Pledge. There's the Palau Pledge. This is still a fairly new notion in the United States. Vail last year became the first U.S. destination to win uh, designation as one of the 100 most sustainable destinations in the world. It remains the only one. I'm fascinated that as part of this, you're encouraging people to go in less well-trod destinations. So, you know, everybody goes perhaps to Garden of the Gods. You're, you're encouraging people to visit places that maybe aren't as visited and that may not be as well-publicized. Inherent in that message, is there a, some of you are going to have to miss out, <laughs> <laughs> or we're encouraging you to miss out and go to these places that aren't as well known. We are very careful never to say don't go there. But what we're also saying is think about when you're going. You know, do you really need to go in the height of summer? Uh, We're also saying, you know, you want to hike in Colorado? There are 38,000 miles of trails in Colorado. You know, there are some that are very popular. There are some, if you want that more Lonely, alone experience, you have thousands of miles to choose Which from. is in and of itself its own draw. Exactly. Mm. Kathy, is there anything about your own behavior you've changed <laughs> in this job? I'm so embarrassed today. I'm drinking out of a plastic water bottle because I failed to well, fill my water bottle before I left home. I confess, I'm not perfect. Well, we were the enablers. We gave you the water bottle. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. It was a pleasure. Kathy Ritter is Colorado's tourism director. Her office is teaming up with the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics in Boulder to plead with tourists to, quote, care for Colorado. We're all in this together. Care for Colorado. It's the only one we got. Respect the place. Leave no trace. And thank you. You really help a lot. Now that Democrats hold a majority in both Colorado's House and Senate, it's on party leaders to manage the hundreds of bills coming through their chambers. They choose which committee each one goes to, and those assignments can make or break a bill. CPR's Benta Berkland explains how things could shift under one-party control. Unlike Congress, where a bill can be introduced and then languish indefinitely, Every piece of legislation at the Colorado State House is required to get a public hearing and at least one recorded vote. It's what makes Colorado's legislature so functional, and I would argue that that's actually a deeper issue with the dysfunctionality in Washington, D.C. That's newly elected Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez from Denver. She used to advocate for immigration and social justice policies and says hearings can really help elevate issues, even when the bill is sure to fail. She plans to introduce a rent control bill. She acknowledges that she doesn't even have enough support from her own party to get it through, but for her, it's still important to run it. When I introduce any piece of legislation, whether or not that is regarded to be controversial, it is because that is what community is asking me to do, because their lived experiences demonstrate that they need a change in the law. Bills that legislative leaders don't want to deal with often go to one place, the Kill Committee. The committee's typically stacked with lawmakers from safe districts. Ideological or partisan bills are sent there, and bills that would be tough for moderate lawmakers to vote against. Republican Senator Ray Scott of Grand Junction chaired the Kill Committee a few years ago. Its real name is actually the State Veterans and Military Affairs Committee. 
there's a group of legislators, and that's probably all of us, quite frankly, that will run uh, particular bills that are not designed to really accomplish much but make a political statement. I think it's fair to say that there are committees that are designed to take care of the political statements. That's pretty much what we do, a lot of. But the new Democratic Senate president, Leroy Garcia of Pueblo, says he wants to take a different approach. There have been some historical precedents of other administrations or other teams to use those committees in a way that, that is in a way that I share. Bill 94 by Senators Lundin and Todd, Representative Garnett, concerning the Legislative Interim Committee on School Finance. Education. It's Garcia's responsibility to pick which committees bills go to. He says he wants to avoid the use of kill committees and send bills to their logical destination. For instance, health care bills going to the health care committee. That could mean Democrats in swing seats have to take some politically risky votes. But Garcia says he doesn't see it as his role to protect them. There are some tough votes. That comes with the job. That comes with the responsibility of the members of the district that you represent. That's what people elect you to do. I wouldn't feel good about myself going back to my district saying, I'm stifling that process or I don't want to take that vote. Already, some Republicans feel like Garcia's no-kill committee policy isn't being applied evenly with all of their bills. However, they acknowledge that being the minority means a lot of their bills are going to fail. Over in the House, Democrats have a much wider majority than the Senate, and a lot of new lawmakers who range from moderate to very liberal. That means they could be facing some intra-party fights. Majority Leader Alec Garnett says they're just going to have to learn how to disagree with each other. This caucus hasn't been tested yet. It's early in session, and we have a lot of new dynamic people that come from districts that Trump won by 16 points. I think it'll be my job to have tough conversations with bill sponsors if they don't have a smart way to fund their bills. That's Democratic Representative Leslie Harrod from Denver, who chairs the House Finance Committee. It's another place leaders may send bills that are hard for certain lawmakers to vote against. And Harrod says sometimes bills don't die because of the politics or the policy but because of the price tag. And I think we'll be killing some bills in finance this year, Democrat and Republican bills. And I think that that is just the way that things go. But because Colorado law requires that every bill gets a hearing, a lot of those policies will at least be publicly debated. And for the Democratic majority, these hearings are also a chance to test support for ideas they're not fully ready to embrace. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night keeps them from their mission. And in this case, we're not talking about the Postal Service. Here's producer Paul Caroli. At the southwestern tip of Chatfield State Park, on a windy morning in late January, I joined a small group of birders on a walk. As we tramped along the icy banks of the South Platte River, they pointed out a new beaver dam, and we speculated together about the changing course of the river. Until a tiny dark shadow flitted across the water. Well, we're not sure. He just flew. There he goes. It's difficult to describe the pleasure of a sighting like that. For some, it's a respite from the day-to-day drudgery of life. For others, it's a feeling of connection with nature. For Erling Kingery, spotting that little brown bird was a teaching moment. Towns and solitaires come out of the mountains in the winter and gather around juniper trees. 
that have those little blueberries that are really cones. And they stake out winter territories. So we see a lot of them. And in their territories, they actually sing in the wintertime, and they also call. And they have a single note whistle. Do you still see it? For everybody out there that day, it was also, at least in part, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of their organization, the Audubon Society of Greater Denver. If people don't know what Audubon is, Audubon is a birding organization. Their focus is birds. Carl Brummert has been executive director of the Denver Audubon for the last eight years. I think as people learn about nature and get more connected to nature, they're more likely to also help protect it as well. The Denver Audubon is commemorating their 50th anniversary with what they're calling a big year competition. Participants are challenged to spot as many species as they can between January 1st and December 31st. Santiago Tabatis is already well on his way to a strong showing. I got into birding when I was four or five years old. I picked up a field guide one day and I just started going through it. And then when my family moved to Colorado, we started going on walks with the the Audubon Center here. And I just kind of just kept going from there. At 15, Santiago is something of an odd duck in a community of mostly retirees. Nonetheless, he's a serious contender. The first week was kind of went all out, and then school started, and I haven't been able to bird much since. But it's still early. Santiago knows he'll have another chance at these winter birds in December. The real crunch time starts in a couple of months. And uh, especially in the spring when the warblers are migrating through, those will... Those birds only are here for maybe two, three weeks out of the entire year, and like if you don't get them then, you're not getting them at all. There's more to modern birding than binoculars, cameras, and floppy sun hats. Every birder I met logged their sightings in a smartphone app called eBird. All their data goes to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, where it's compiled and made available for researchers all over the world. People are out every single day looking at birds, so you're getting recordings of birds across the country every day. And it's just a really great way to get get people involved in not just people who love birding, but also to get them involved in research and the science of it. Oh, nice. Red eye. Look at that red eye. Denver Audubon member Lynn Forrester was in charge of logging our group's sightings in eBird. So this is designed to be able to count not only what you see, but how many of each bird you see. And the goal is to count every bird that you see, not just the ones you're interested in. So even the common birds we count as we go by. By the end of the walk, Lynn had logged sightings of 23 species and three subspecies, including a red-tailed hawk. It's important for preservation of the animals and of the birds, and if we know how many are out here. Um, if you don't know what's here, it's a little hard to protect it, and that's probably the primary benefit. And Lynn and I chatted a few minutes more about citizen science and climate change and the ice covering our trail. Then, a flash of feathers, a flap of wings, there was another piece of valuable data hiding in the brush. There's a chickadee. You can tell just by the call. Now, the concept of a big year long predates Denver Audubon. For the better part of a century, it's been a tradition for birders to spot as many species as they can across North America in a single calendar year. Denver author Marco Masic wrote a book about it called The Big Year, a tale of man, nature, and foul obsession. You can guess how foul is spelled. It was turned into a feature film, and Mark, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. What's the craziest thing you've seen someone do to spot a bird during a big year? <laughs> the craziest thing during a big year, uh, 
I mean, there, there's, the, there's the overall uh, notion of just a marathon. How many birds can you see in a year? And so people spend over $100,000 in a year, and they'll travel 200,000 miles. They'll fly at the, at the drop of a hat. I mean, there was one guy I, I had talked to who had purchased uh, tickets uh, from his home in Ohio to go to see a Flamingo in Florida, but then at the last minute, the rare bird alert said, oh, no, there's a Zantusa's hummingbird that's being seen in Gibson's British Columbia. And so what does he do? He drops his plans to go to Florida and ends up in British Columbia just to chase a bird. A Zantusa's, what we say? Zantusa's hummingbird is supposed to live down in the Baja. But, you know, like Leonard Skinner said, birds are free. They, <laughs> they, they go where they want. And, uh, you know, we've actually had some terrific birds uh, here in Colorado, even just... Even just this year, I mean, you, it, it's in some ways it's it's kind of a it's a treasure hunt for grownups or alleged grownups. Do you mean some unusual sightings here in Colorado? Once in a lifetime, uh, first first sightings ever. You bet. Uh, right now, in fact, there is a bird uh, in Frederick, uh, north of the Denver metro area, a pink-footed goose. Uh, this is a bird that's supposed to be in Iceland and Greenland. Uh, actually, kind of common in the UK, but Iceland, Greenland. What's it doing way inland here? Well, there is a there's a birder who picked through uh, a flight of probably 4,000, 5,000 just regular Canada uh, geese, cackling geese, and he saw that hey, this is a goose out there that doesn't have white cheeks, and look, it's got uh, it's got pink feet, <laughs> and he's just sort of tagging along with the other geese. He is. He's just hanging out, and then and then the crazy thing is the 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 flock on uh, on that lake was uh, was so big. That uh, another uh, really rare bird showed up too—a barnacle goose. That's another bird that's supposed to be over in Europe. So who knows if uh, uh, you know these? Who knows if these birds were like the the dad on a road trip that doesn't want to stop and ask for directions, or if <laughs> they've just got some wanderlust? But uh, it's just this magnificent moving landscape. And the fact that every big year could be different based on which random bird happens into our airspace. Uh, I understand that you were working as a reporter when you got interested in birding. Will you tell us uh, that story? Sure. I didn't know anything about birds. Uh, I was a political reporter at the Denver Post covering a Senate race in 1986 between Tim Worth and Ken Kramer. And at the time, they were arguing about something called Two Forks Dam. I'd never heard of Two Forks Dam. So I asked editors, what should I do? Look into it. And turns out that the Denver Water Board and the suburbs wanted to build a 615-foot concrete structure at the confluence of the, the South Platte and, and the North Fork uh, of the, the South Platte out near Deckers, southwest of the, the metro area. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, probably talk to Denver, talk to you know, uh, real estate developers. And I said, yeah, I keep getting these things from Audubon. What about Audubon? Should I, should I call them? Oh, you know, those are the bird people. You can you can check in with them, but I don't know that anything's going to come of it. Well, it turns out <laughs> you're right. Audubon are the bird people, but you know what? They're they're really organized and they're really fastidious. And Audubon, as well as some of the other local environmental organizations like Trout Unlimited, EDF, uh, they banded together the Sierra Club and they fought Two Forks Dam like crazy. They would show up uh, by the hundreds at public hearings to oppose this water project that would have flooded 30 miles of the South Platte River. And sure enough, in 1990, out of nowhere, like a lightning bolt, the EPA killed it. And so those birders, those bird people, actually succeeded in, in, in changing the course of, 
of development in Metro Denver. So don't dismiss the bird people. In other words, they're a formidable force. I wonder if birding, to some extent, became a pressure release valve when you were on the journalism beat, which can be hard, you know? Well, I went native. (laughs) Once you learn about birds, it really changes your view of the world. Uh, You don't have a sunroof in your car anymore. It's a hawk roof. Uh, when somebody says <laughs> when somebody says duck, you look up. Uh, it's I mean migration is one of the great natural phenomenons. It's just kind of hidden in plain sight. Twice a year, just tens of millions of birds go from their homes in South America, Central America, and Mexico, and they come up here looking for love. They're they're going to nest. They're going to they're going to breed. And so your regular trees in City Park in Denver. Uh, one day may be bare and the next day, if, if migration usually takes place at night, if there's a storm, the trees can be speckled like, uh, uh Christmas ornaments, just full of, uh, birds. And it really, I mean, you, it, it just, it, it never ceases. There's just a sense of awe and wonderment. There are these creatures that are the size of your pinky, you know, so light that you could mail 10 of them for the price of a first class postage stamp, a hummingbird. And you can look in your backyard here in Denver and see this hummingbird drinking from your feeder and realize, wow, just a few weeks ago, this was in southern Mexico or Belize. How did something that light get there? Any advice for maybe some first-time birders? Sure. Join join an Audubon uh, bird walk. Go with people who know what they're doing. But the great thing about birding is you can do it at at your own level. You can be a fanatic who will uh, at the the drop of a hat, uh, fly to the Aleutian Islands of Alaska for rarity, <laughs> or you can do it while you drink a cup of coffee uh, and 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 listen to to Colorado Matters uh, in your kitchen. And uh, there will be you'll have gross beaks or house finches, and uh, uh, they're really if if you take time to study them, they're really beautiful creatures. Marco Masic, is there one bird you have not seen that you hope to? Well, I tried uh, yesterday. <laughs> My nemesis bird. I was driving. Your nemesis bird. <laughs> I was driving home. <laughs> I was trying uh, just outside of Palisade. I was looking for chucker, which is uh, an Asian bird. They've been reintroduced and, and, and live here. They look like a, a quail, kind of a, a wild chicken. I've tried four different times at this place uh, near Debec Canyon. And uh, I went again. And uh, uh, Wild Horse Canyon is one of the, the, the biggest uh, managed wild horse herds in the United States, but I was looking for the bird and the bird wasn't there. You've got me. The chucker. Okay, I wish you luck on finding one. (laughs) Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Denver author Marco Masic wrote The Big Year, A Tale of Man, Nature, and Foul Obsession. We spoke as Denver Audubon marks 50 years. And thanks to producer Paul Caroli. Finally today, the latest album from the Denver-based choir Cantori. It's one of several recordings engineered by Blanton Alspa, who's nominated for a Grammy this year. Alspa is no stranger to the Grammys. He's had seven wins and 21 nominations throughout his career. For a taste of his work with Cantori, here is Flight Song from their album Infinity.
Flight Song from the album Infinity by Denver's own Cantorai. It was engineered by Blanton Alspa. He's up for Classical Producer of the Year at the 61st Annual Grammy Awards. They'll be held February 10th. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.